This episode of Get In The Game podcast is presented by the Sports Spectrum Magazine. Stories and articles on the intersection of sports and faith that you won't find anywhere else. I love this magazine, and I highly recommend you all subscribe and get your copy today. We keep our subscriptions affordable for everyone, and it makes a great gift, particularly for the kids. Subscribe today at sportspectrum.com and click the magazine icon at the top of the page. Get your subscription now at sportspectrum.com. You won't regret it. Welcome to Get in the Game Podcast with your host, Scott Langer, former MLB star and current water mission advocate. Oh yeah, and he also happens to be our dad, so let's dive right in. Hey everybody, I'm Scott Linebrink. I'm your host of Get in the Game Podcast, and we're back for another episode. This week, I've got a friend of mine, recent friend, uh, author, businessman, uh, pastor even. His name is John Reinhardt. He is the author of Gospel Patrons. John, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. Well, I'm excited for this conversation. We've already had a little bit of conversation ahead of this, and uh, you have taught me so much here in recent months just about uh, stewardship, uh, specifically uh, stewardship in the context of God's calling for our life. And um, you've obviously had a calling yourself to leave the business world, to get into seminary. Um, but I think I remember from your story that there was never really an idea that you would become a pastor, but how God used that step to prepare you for what you were going to do, which is create this movement of gospel patrons through this writing of this book. And you've got a lot of great content. Uh, I would encourage people to go check them out on social media. And they've got some great blog articles, some great interviews with other guys like Bob Shank and Todd Peterson and men that I really respect. But um, why don't we start with the fact of uh, or the idea of gospel patron? And maybe you can define that for us. Yeah, it's a term that got coined not by me, but by a friend and mentor of mine. We, we're familiar with the term patron in that you'd hear a patron of the arts or a patron of scientific research, or if you go to a fancy concert hall or a symphony or something, there'll probably be somewhere on the wall a list of the patrons who helped to build that facility so you can go and enjoy the symphony or the orchestra or whatever. And so we, we understand that patrons are often behind the scenes funding things that wouldn't happen otherwise. And we apply that to lots of different sectors in society. But I think the big light bulb moment with the gospel patron is that all throughout scripture and history, we see that God raises up these kinds of patrons to use their wealth, their influence, and their partnership to advance his kingdom and specifically this message about Jesus we call the gospel. That's a great, great definition right there. Thank you for that. So um, you shared this story when we were together with a community of pro athletes several months ago, but could you give us um, the, the story again for our listeners about how you came to write this book? Yeah, I think I was really wrestling. I started my career in business and it's just, I was succeeding early, but I didn't have a sense of purpose and I was making money and God bless my business career when I was 23, 24, 25. But I began asking the question, what's it for? And at the time, I was living in Orange County, California, near Newport Beach, where the goal is to get a bigger and bigger house, a faster and faster car, move closer and closer to the beach. 
And I just knew that's not the reason God put me on planet Earth, that that's not a big enough reason to live for. Just more toys, more thrills, more trips. There's got to be more to life than that. But I didn't know what it was. And being a business leader felt like being a second-class Christian. And I think sometimes being an athlete or being a professional in a variety of different you know, sectors can feel like, well, but I'm not the pastor and I'm not the missionary and I'm not the guy sort of leading the movement. And so am I really just a second-class Christian? And despite the great mentors and pastors and education that I had, it, 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 I couldn't answer those questions of what's the role of a business person within God's kingdom or what's the role of a professional within God's kingdom and what's the purpose of money? Why does God give it to us? And when he blesses us with more than we need, is that just so we can build a bigger kingdom for ourselves? Mm -hmm. Or what's it for? And I was so sort of bothered by these things and the trajectory of my life. I just wasn't, wasn't happy with it. I had a midlife crisis at 25 instead of at 40. I was ahead of the curve on that one. And so I hit the eject button and I left business to go looking for purpose, which led to, I'll go back to seminary so I can get more grounded in the Bible which led to my wife and I taking a trip all the way around the world, 132 days around the world, because that was her dream to become a global Christian and to learn to walk by faith. And it was on that trip around the world that I was praying every day since when this trip is over, I got to go back into business or I'm going to go into some kind of ministry vocation. I didn't know what it was going to be. And we met this friend and mentor of ours who was at the time a friend of a friend. And he just shared with us the idea that a gospel patron is someone who's kind of like the uh, supply line for the spread of the gospel, mm -hmm. that God raises up professional people to stand with those on the front lines. And they have a different role, but the same passion, the same mission, the same sense of calling. And when he combines a gospel proclaimer with a gospel patron, we see in history, God's done explosive things. And it was the first time I'd ever heard sort of the biography or a story of a Christian professional or business leader who had been right at the strategic heart of what God was doing in a generation. It always seemed like business and professional people were sort of extras. You know, you see them walking in the background of the movie, but you don't know their names and you'll never recognize their faces and they're not really significant to the overall story. But he told us these three little stories of how God used a wealthy cloth merchant to fund the first translation of the English Bible in the 1500s. I'm like, wait, what? There's a business leader behind that? And then behind the Great Awakening and this massive preacher named George Whitfield was this wealthy aristocratic woman named Lady Huntington who wanted to fulfill her part to play in the kingdom. But you know, as a wealthy aristocratic lady, what was it going to be? And it was funding Whitfield and funding seminaries and funding evangelism in her day. It led to the Great Awakening. I'm like, wait, you got to be kidding me. What? And then the, the famous hymn, Amazing Grace, which we know and have been singing for 250 years, had a wealthy gospel patron behind him, uh, behind the writer of that hymn named John Thornton. And John Thornton was a newer Christian in his mid-30s, had vast wealth from a number of different businesses, and he began to leverage it alongside of a friend and pastor named John Newton. So by the time John Newton wrote his hymn, Amazing Grace, um, John Thornton had heard about it early and just in the letters that they had exchanged with one another and said, these are pretty good. If you'll take the trouble to put these into a book, I'll take the trouble to expense it and buy the first thousand copies. The only reason we even know the song Amazing Grace is because a business leader said, these are pretty good. These hymns are pretty good. Let's launch this into the world and see what God's going to do. I mean, I just heard the little snippets of these stories as a 29-year-old. And it was like electricity in my body. Like, wait a second, how come I've never heard this? And how can I help the world hear this? Because I know there's 
those other people asking these same questions that I'm asking. Athletes, artists, creatives, technologists, business leaders. How do I find my part to play in the kingdom of God? Because no matter what happens, I don't want to miss that. Mm -hmm. And then you had a similar experience, right? With a patron that came alongside you. Yeah. So I, I wrote to the guy in Australia and I just said, you know, um, I think you need to write a book on this. And he wrote back, oh, let's write the book together. And then a few months later, he didn't have the capacity to keep going. So he said, I, you know, I bless you to go ahead and write the book. But I knew I wasn't smart enough to do that just as a side hustle or part-time job. I needed to really devote myself to it. And with and I worked without income for 10 months. And I think many people in my life thought I was crazy. Just go get a job. You're trained now in seminary or you've succeeded in business. But I just had this burden that these stories had to be told. They had to be in the world. And God raised up a patron from my local church. He was a year older than me, gifted in telecom sales. I, he was sort of a friend, but we didn't know each other that well. And God uniquely called him and prompted him to support the work of this book project, which ended up being three years of him being my gospel patron, funding me, essentially saying, I'm not your boss. I'm not your editor. I'm not your manager. I'm your friend. This is your opportunity. Go for it. And so he and his wife were amazing, fully funded us. Never put pressure on us, but we're just always in our lives, loving us, praying for us, getting to know us, building the friendship. And uh, three years later, we launched a blue book into the world called Gospel Patrons that God has broken and blessed and spread all over the place. And uh, it was their step of faith merged with my step of faith that made this movement and anything that comes out of it possible. So it was a, really an amazing blessing to not only write about this from scripture and history, but to get to live it myself. And I'm like, wait, God makes people like this. He still makes people like this who have a passion for his kingdom and generosity. And they're not just trying to build their own kingdom. Man, th those are the kind of people I love to be around. Absolutely. John, I want to go back to, you said you were 29 years old. You had a very successful business career and you talked about this major life shift was that scary when you were thinking about the prospects of leaving? Absolutely. Uh, okay. I, I just had the best month I'd ever had financially, the month I resigned <laughs> to go to seminary. All my coworkers and bosses and managers thought I was nuts. Yeah. Um, but it had been a journey and, and I had been, you know, going through some my own like soul searching process for at least six months where I was talking to mentors and pastors and praying and talking to my wife and saying, like I can't, if I look up the company org chart, I can't see myself being that guy in five years or that guy in 10 years, or that guy in 15 years. And at some point when, when that hits, you just have to make, you just have to make a different decision and you have to be willing to take the risk. I also like risk. I think it's fun. I think there's a sense of if you don't risk, when, when you risk, you feel alive and there's a sense of, you don't know what the outcome is and you could fail. But if you fail, you're going to learn something. And if you stay the same and you play it safe, you might end up in a place you never wanted to be. And I don't know. I, I would rather roll the dice and watch what God does because he's sovereign and good and he loves me. And so why not try something totally different, totally new? Absolutely. Um, so you mentioned those three stories in the book and I have read your book and and I love each one of those stories. I love how, you know, you talk about a cloth merchant, you know, funding the spread of the gospel. Like that doesn't even make sense from a business standpoint, but uh, it worked. And, you know, just further evidence of how God confounds the wise, you know, with his ways and shows us ways that we can't even ask or imagine. Um, which of those stories or maybe any other stories that you've heard since? Because I know you've got some stories also in the back of the book about modern day patrons. Which one's your favorite? 
Oh, that's such a tough question. It's like, <laughs> which of your children is your favorite, right? <laughs> I, I think I think probably the, the one I've told the most on stages and at conferences and events and podcasts and everything else is probably the William Tyndale Humphrey mm. Monmouth story the first English Bible being put into the world. I think there's something about that story that we can all appreciate having a Bible in our language. And I think we can also all take it for granted, thinking like, hasn't their Bible always been in English? And forgetting that there was a long season in history where it was in Latin and not in English. And it, I think it increases my gratitude to have a Bible, to know that William Tyndale was a martyr who paid for it with his life. And Humphrey Monmouth was a merchant who was imprisoned for a year so that I could have the Bible. It motivates me to go, well, what could I do for others that might way outlive me or mm. make a difference You know, once I'm gone that I gave to something significant and God used it beyond what, you know. I'll say the other one that's been a favorite for me that uh, is a biblical story is that the fact that Jesus Christ himself had three gospel patrons funding his ministry. I, we... This this was uh, like thunder and lightning in my life because I'd heard those historical stories and it seemed like, yeah, that makes sense. And I understand that. And isn't that really you know cool and special? But then when I was reading the Gospel of Luke and I came across the fact that three women funded Jesus's ministry, it blew my mind. Mm. I thought, wait a second, how come I've never even considered? We all know Jesus was a carpenter, but he left all that behind to go preach and teach for three years. How was he funded? Who paid for it? He had 12 disciples with him and probably a larger company of folks. They all, those disciples, they were young men. They probably ate a ton. Where'd the budget come from for that? How did he fund that? Was it just leftover baskets of fish and loaves from the day before and they just kept that rolling? Was it just that he was casting, you know, fish out and, you know, fishing lines out into the net, out into the sea and catching fish with coins in their mouth? Like, how did he fund his ministry? And scripture actually tells us Mary, Joanna, and Susanna, these three wealth, wealthy, influential women, women in Luke chapter eight, verses one through three, says they provided for him out of their means. That was mind-blowing, that the Son of God could have provided for himself in any number of miraculous ways. If he wanted money to grow on trees, done. That's yeah. totally possible with him. But it, it's the way that God works. He calls some to preach and some to be the patrons. Some are going to speak and some are going to send. Somebody's going to go. You got to go to the people and meet them where they're at. But somebody else is going to give. And when those parts come together, watch out. He's about to move. And when I saw it in the life of Jesus, that that was inc incredibly powerful for me. I love that idea of patronage or partnership, uh, how God invited people to come into his ministry. And that's how you develop stakeholders. And, and it now serves as a great example for us, too, that there's still many, many ministry, much ministry work to be done. And he invites us into that calling as well. How that, neat. You know, I've got to say, Scott, that's one of the great mysteries to me of, of our faith that our God can do anything and he can do it all himself, but somehow he wants to use these fallen, frail people made from dust and his breath to be a part of his plan. He doesn't have to, but he does. And when I hear that, when I see that in scripture, that he just, sometimes he chooses the weakest, sometimes he chooses the lowliest. Um, I just say, okay, Lord, what's my part to play? Because you created me for good works. You created me for a reason. And I don't want to miss that, but I also don't want anyone else to miss that because when everybody starts playing their part, like all, you know, the rising tide raises all ships, we all win. 
So it fires me up to go, okay, Lord, you don't have to use me, but you want to use me. So I'm all in. What do you want me to do? You know, that's a great way to look at it too, for those like on the other side of it, who we may feel a touch of pride if we're, you know, funding something at a high level and we think, well, this ministry or this effort is dependent upon me. And really and truly God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He can fund it with anybody. He's invited me into the opportunity and that's incredibly humbling. And so at no point does he want us to become prideful and say, this is all about, you know, the big check that I wrote or the the amount of time that I have spent supporting this. God, God will just go find another patron. So that's such a good, I mean, of all the gospel patrons I've met over the years, the very best of the best have exactly that mentality. It's like, Lord, is this my assignment? And if it is, how humbling to be a part of it. Thank mm. you for the invitation, which is the opposite of what most people think of when they think of, you know, development work or funding ministry. They think, oh, like I have to do this and, oh, they need me and I'm so important. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> that's not the right mindset. Yeah. Uh, the best gospel patrons see it as a privilege and an honor to participate with God and what he's doing on the earth. And it has so enriched my family's experiences and the relationships that we share with others who we've been involved with ministry in. It it truly is, I believe, the the greatest piece to to bring people together is generosity and serving. That's awesome. Well, I've gotten really passionate over the years about the fact that it's not just that that we are called to be generous givers, but that God himself is the greatest, most passionate, most generous, most cheerful giver we could ever imagine. Mm. Recently, I was uh, speaking at an event in Indianapolis, and I found myself saying something that I'd never said before, which was, if, if we were trying to write a, a movie, a, a character in a movie for a screenplay, we could never invent a character more more generous than the God of the Bible. If you're an author writing a book, even if you're writing a novel and you're thinking, what's the character going to do and how are they going to you know, save the day and sacrifice and be generous and all that, no, none of us could have ever invented, we never could invent a character more generous than the God of the Bible. He is the greatest giver, the most generous giver we could ever conceive of. And we we know it sort of in, intuitively, but sometimes we don't connect those dots because we don't talk about the generosity of God. We might talk about the grace of God or the holiness of God or the goodness of God. But at the very center of our faith is a God who gives. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. The God of the Bible gave his one and only son. When you look at Jesus, what this says about Jesus is, um, I, it says that husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The very greatest thing God does is give. Yes, he's holy. Yes, he's beautiful. Yes, he's righteous. Yes, he's sovereign. Yes, he's powerful. Yes, he's good. But when we experience heaven invading earth, most of the time, it, it's generosity. James chapter one says, every good and perfect gift comes down from the father of lights in heaven. He's the giver of every good and perfect gift. Acts 17 says, he gives to all men life, breath, and everything. If you were to ask, ask me, who is the God of the Bible? It would be very theologically and biblically accurate to say he's the most generous being we could ever conceive of. We know how to give good gifts to our children on their birthdays and at Christmas, and we're evil. 
Jesus says in Matthew chapter seven. You know, if your son asks you for bread, you don't give him a stone. If he asks you for fish, you don't give him a serpent. How much more does your father give good things to those who ask him? We might have a, a way of being generous on earth, but there is a heavenly level of generosity that is so far beyond. We can't we can't conceive of the kind of generosity of God toward undeserving sinners. Now, I'm not a health and wealth prosperity theology guy. I'm not. I don't believe that we give in order to get. I believe we give because that's who God's made us to be, and that's who he is. And so every time we give, we get a chance to reflect his heartbeat and become more like him. But he, his heart is just always beating to give. He gives us eternal life. He gives us forgiveness as a free gift. He gives us salvation as a gift. Justification is called a gift in the Bible. He gives us the Holy Spirit, which is called the gift of God. He gives us a kingdom that we'll be able to participate with him in for all eternity, not because we've earned it, but because it's been a free gift. What kind of God are we talking about? Because all the gods of this world say, serve me, do what I, you know, follow all the rules, do everything right, and then maybe I'll love you and let you into heaven. But the God of the Bible says, I know you can't get there on your own, but I will gladly and freely give you all that you need. I'll provide all that you need. Don't worry about what you're going to eat or drink or wear. I have all of that covered, not only for you, but for all the birds and the flowers of the field. So if I can take care of them, I can take care of you just fine. You don't worry about that. You seek first my kingdom. I'll take care of the provision piece. What kind of God are we talking about here? Because most of us have grown up. Somehow we've we've sort of interpreted God as cheap, as miserly, as holding out on us, that he doesn't really give generously. He doesn't really want the best for us. So we have to go take it. Or we have to go provide for ourselves. We have to make a way for ourselves. We have to get it and grasp it. And that's just not the story of the Bible. That's not his nature. It's not his character. It's not who he is. It's not how we would act toward our children. And yet we think he's maybe a little less than how we would be. And the Bible says it's the exact opposite. He's so much greater and more kind and more generous than we ever would be. And so when I think about actually my favorite gospel patron, it's God. It's God. He's the greatest giver. There's no one like him and everybody else's generosity, whether it's the three women who funded Jesus or the cloth merchant who funded the English Bible. I mean, all that they're doing is showing us a little window into the very heartbeat of who God is. And that is what's most capturing to me is him. It's him and it's his heart. Indeed. The gospel is generosity, and we give because God first gave. Uh, probably one of the most well-known Bible verses in the world. Um, and, and to relate that to generosity and generosity that inspires other generosity. And right. for me and my family, we we have been so blessed by coming alongside other groups. You know, you hear about somebody giving to a cause, um, and they're just passionate about it. Um, and they invite you to come in and then, you know, you become a part of it and you start to see this groundswell of others coming alongside. Now we have a community of givers and how cool to know that we're all part of this same purpose and same cause. And when we can do that for God's kingdom, that's again, that's that's truly the life that God's calling us to. Very so let cool. me ask you a question for yeah. athletes. Scott. What is it like for an athlete? Because so often for pro athletes, people know they can look up how much money you make. Mm -hmm. And that's very rare. Most people have no idea what their friends make, but you, you could Google your friend if he's an athlete and probably find what his contract was. Is there an expectation 
to be generous as an athlete? And then does that kill some of the joy of giving or how, how does that work in the athlete world? It's definitely a responsibility, I would say. And to your point, you know, people know exactly what your W9 looks like. So, um, you know, there is an expectation sometimes. And and for me, expectations were something that I really battled throughout my career, whether it's what we're talking about here with how much you should give or how much you should, you know, exercise, you know, how, why don't you have a foundation? Why aren't you donating your time to do this or X, Y, or Z? Um, you know, but also expectations for performance. And that's really something that I've had to overcome. Um, but I, I really, you know, I was, of course, had some great mentors that taught me a lot about what generosity truly is and what God's calling us to. And, you know, generosity is something that should free us. It never should be something. You had a great quote, and I think it's very relevant for right here. You said, God is not glorified by guilty, reluctant, compelled givers. He's glorified by givers whose hearts are stirred and then offer freely, willingly, joyfully what he's put in their hands. He wants cheerful givers. And so, you know, really when I realized that it's, you know, it doesn't depend on anybody else's expectations of what I should be giving or where I should be spending my time, money, talent, resources in any way. God's that that's a personal relationship between me and God. Of course, I want to seek him in prayer. I want him to lead me and tell me where and what he wants me to be doing. Um, but if I'm giving because I I want to meet the expectations of someone else, then I've missed the whole point. I'm I'm giving to please man instead of God. And yeah. so uh, I love that journey. I love having God open himself up to us. Uh, you know, quick story. My wife and I, years ago, we were once um, talking about a particular organization that we had supported in the past. And over dinner one night, I said, you know, I really feel like God might be calling us to give like a lot more than what we have been giving in the past. And she said, you know, I've, I've kind of been feeling the same pull. And so we actually talked about a specific amount, which was kind of a stretch for us. And it was definitely more, much more than, than any we had given in the past. And when we came home, um, you know, we talked about that, that $1 amount. We came home and there was a, a letter sitting in the mail. This is back when you used to get mail. And, um, <laughs> and we opened it up and it was a specific challenge to us asking if we would consider X amount for this particular project. And it was exactly the amount that we had just talked about. And I just, I almost had to drop the letter and, you know, of course called Kelly in immediately, but, um, to, to see how God was moving in our hearts and preparing us for something that we were going to realize later. Um, and, and it was just confirmation that, that God was leading us. And, and it was probably the easiest check we've ever written because we knew exactly what God was calling us to. And he he's not always that direct. Sometimes it's a little more ambiguous, but the journey in trying to discover, you know, what and how he wants you to, to give of yourself is, is the excitement, the mystery. Yes. Well, I loved what you said about giving is meant to free us that so often we think we can think of giving as an obligation or a burden or like it, it weighing me down is just one more thing. But but actually, I think I've come to see that giving is why we live. It's why we exist. We don't live to consume. We don't live to just build our own little kingdoms. We we live to lay our lives down. Greater love has no man than this, than that he lay his life down for his friends. Not greater love has no man than this, than he builds an impenetrable fortress with his wealth and success so that he can relax all of his days, hmm. right? Greater love is right. no man than this, than when he lay his life down. And and one of the ways that we lay our lives down is by laying our wealth down because it 
cost us our life to be able to get that. If you're an athlete, it, it took you years and, and thousands of hours of practice and practice, getting up early, staying up late, watching film, having mentors, having coaches, eating right, saying no to all kinds of good opportunities so you could pursue what God's uniquely gifted you to do. So in exchange for all of that time, what you're given then are some zeros in your bank account, a check with some numbers on it. And what that check represents is the life that you've put into your craft. So to give away that money feels a little bit like giving away your life. And I think that's right. And so when we get a chance to lay our lives down, whether it's clean water with water mission, whether it's Bible translation, whether it's your local church, whether it's some missionaries that you can support with athletes in action or crew or however God would lead you to get behind the, the building and, and advance of his kingdom, there is a cost to be paid, but there's never been a great hero story where there's not a story of sacrifice mixed in. We tip God's kingdom. We probably shouldn't expect anything great. Mm. <laughs> But when we sacrifice, when we step out in faith and do what you've called, you know, what you were just saying God led you guys to do, that's generally where we see joy and breakthrough and fruitfulness explode. And that's the kind of life that I want to live and call us to live because I think that's the kind of life that's the life that's truly life. Half-hearted Christianity is the worst place to be, right? Because you know enough of God to feel guilty for not doing more, but you're not convicted enough to actually obey him what he's what you know he's commanded you to do. But the life of generosity is a life of freedom, and it's a life of finding the, the life that's truly joyful. And um, there's there's not an obligation. It's all opportunity. John, you get me fired up. I mean, just like the last two times I've heard you speak and reading your book and now talking to you, um, I would ask you, what excites you about the idea of a whole host of people becoming gospel patrons? What What could that do for the kingdom of God and for the people that choose to engage in becoming a patron? Well, it's, uh, I think that was the question that captured me at 29. When I first heard those historical stories of gospel patrons, I went, man, if that's what God can do through one person, one, one wealthy aristocratic lady in England, or one cloth merchant or one businessman, if he could do that through one person, what could he do through a generation of people like that? And you know what's exciting is that I've been invited to play a part with a bunch of different ministries and helping them um, communicate to their patrons and their supporters the vision of how generosity does truly advance the kingdom of God. And I think just was it last weekend, there's a community of patrons who come together once a year to fund Bible translation and some historic stuff is happening. 120 families committed $85 million to translate God's word into the remaining languages that are still in progress to be finished. And it's going to take a lot more than 85 million to get to the absolute finish line where every language on planet earth has God's word in their heart language. But to see, oh, the gift that we received from a cloth merchant giving us the scriptures in our language, we can turn around and give that to people who still are waiting for the Bible in the language they know best. God's doing that. That's, that's just one example with Bible translation, but that the way that I think of why do I want to see a generation of gospel patrons for three reasons. I want to see them build the church, bless the world, and finish the Great Commission. Build the church, bless the world, finish the Great Commission. 
build a church. We know Jesus is building his church in our generation and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We know we're called to use our gifts to build up the body of Christ. So yes, let's bless our churches, our local churches, our pastors, our leaders, those who feed us with the word of God week in and week out. But let's also bless the world. The good Samaritan gave generously to this guy he didn't even know who was beat up, lying in, you know, left for dead, laying in the road. And he funded this guy's healing journey, paid for the innkeeper to take care of him, like came back to check on him and took care of his bills because he was blessing this man. And that's who our God is. You know, give a cup of cold water in my name. You will by no means lose your reward. And so when we bless the world by serving the poor, serving the hurting, serving those who've been trafficked, helping those who are hungry, homeless, lost, uh, abused, broken, foster kids, adoption, all of that. Uh, widows, orphans, like when we care for those, it blesses the heart of God and God blesses the world. And so I want to see gospel patrons raised up to do all of that with Jesus at the very center of it. Not that Jesus is sort of tacked on later, but like like you like you do, Scott, like there's a sense of let's give him clean water and let's give him Jesus because they're both one feeds, you know, feeds the appetite or the thirst and the other one quenches the soul and you need both. But the third, let's finish the great commission. We are as close as history has ever been to crossing the finish line where every people group, every tribe, every tongue, every language is going to have access in our lifetimes to a Bible in the language they know best, a body of believers in their local community that they could worship with, and some sort of Bible teaching missionary pastor, you know, evangelist in their community that they can continue to be discipled by. I mean, this is happening in our day. We are we we are living in a generation where the Great Commission could actually be completed. This isn't just theory. Like there are people strategizing and giving like crazy to see everyone everywhere know Jesus. And I think, man, it's going to take a lot of gospel patrons to get those three big things done. But if those get done and I can play a small part in contributing to that, man, that's what I want to live for. So you mentioned some great endeavors right there with things going on that are helping to share God's love with other people. As we think about action steps for people that are listening to this, that are getting excited and going, man, I want to engage in something like that. I want to be a part of something bigger than myself. What would you offer them in terms of advice on what to engage in? How do we decide which of those activities we should support? That's an excellent question, and I'm not going to give you a list of my top 10 ministries <laughs> of charities because I want you to walk this out in your own you know, context and your own faith journey. But what I would say is I'm a huge advocate for supporting gospel-based ministries of all kinds. So not just philanthropy, not just giving to the local animal shelter, or the hospital, or a good school. Those things might need to be done, but there's going to be many people in the world who will fund those things. The, the only people on planet earth who are going to fund this, the name of Jesus and the message of Jesus going to the ends of the earth are the people of God. And so we have to make it our, our unique charge to say, if we don't fund the gospel in our city, in our church, in our state, into the ends of the earth, who else will do it? And so whatever God's going to call you to support, I would say there's the reason that in the term gospel patrons, the word gospel comes first. It's got to be about Jesus and and the amazing, amazing news that he saves us forever. Mm. And then you can integrate that into sports ministry, water, you know, you can do all kinds of evangelistic ministry. You can in, in, do it in all kinds of, you know, mercy ministry, but we got to keep the gospel right at the center um, because we're the only people on the planet who will fund that message. And it's that message that has the power to save and transform lives. Second piece of advice I would say is, 
I have noticed over the years that people with wealth um, sometimes can take a um, a passive role with giving. I'll wait to be asked. I'll wait for the invitation to the fundraising dinner. I'll wait for the fundraising weekend opportunity. And I think most of the people who've earned significant wealth over the years are not passive people. They have, passive, they have a passive approach to giving, but they're not passive people. To to earn wealth, you got to be proactive. You got to get after it. You got to you got to get up early. You got to work hard. You got to you know all, all of those things. And so, if I could ignite you to be proactive in your giving by by asking you one simple question, ask this question to somebody who's already in your life. Find a person who leads a ministry, find a person who's, you know, doing evangelism or missions somewhere, ask your pastor or one of the pastors on staff, the high school pastor, college pastor, somebody that you already have a relationship with, because I'm guessing you have a believer in your life who's in some way involved in ministry and ask him this question. What's one thing that I could do for you that would completely transform your ministry this year? What's one thing? Maybe it's something that you don't have a budget for. Maybe it's something you were scared to even dream about. Maybe it's something that is so big that you just thought the money would never come in. But if it did, it could totally transform your ministry. Maybe it's something that would double your influence overnight. Maybe it's something that would expand your reach or your audience um, in the next year by triple. But you're kind of scared to mention it, and the, the numbers just feel too scary and too big. Maybe I can meet that. Maybe I can't. But I don't. I won't know what that is unless I ask you the question. So, what's one thing? Find someone in your life. Ask them the question. What's one thing that would completely transform your ministry this year? And then wait and see what they say. Whether it's via email, whether it's a text, whether it's a lunch meeting, and just brainstorm with them. And in the end, be honest. Like I, I might be able to help with that. I might, but I can, I can definitely pray about that for you. I can definitely ask the Lord to do that. And if I can do ten percent of it, then find nine other people like me. Right. Or maybe I can find two others and you find seven other people like me. Um, but I want to help you. I want to help propel you toward the dreams of God that he's already put in your heart, because I want the kingdom of God to advance. And I already believe in what you're doing and I believe in what God's put in your heart. And I want to come alongside you. And you don't have to make a lifetime commitment in that. You could be a two or three year commitment. But I, I think you want to ask the question and get out of the passive approach and beginning begin being proactive with with your giving. I think that's where the fun comes in too, and the joy comes in. I can just picture the face of the pastor or the organizational representative that gets asked that question. Like, wait, are you asking me a trick question? <laughs> <laughs> but I love that approach. I love the heart that that shows and, uh, and, you know, just the ability to dream big and think about, you know, what's the biggest way that you could dream? How can I dream with you and how could yeah. this become a reality? Cause sometimes it's just, it begins with a simple question, God, what, what would you have for me? That's and right. the answer might really surprise you. Absolutely. I think it, it, it creates a lot of joy when you go, man, I, I could get in the game and I'm not doing this because I've been asked to, I've been doing this because I believe in this person. I want to try to come alongside them. John, thank you so much for your time. This has been a wonderful conversation. I hope it's been really inspiring for those listening. Thank you for the movement that you're a part of and inspiring all of us to be gospel patrons. Appreciate you, Scott. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to today's edition of Get In The Game podcast, part of the Sports Spectrum podcast network. Check out sportspectrum.com for more content. And while you're there, consider subscribing to our Sports Spectrum magazine. It makes a great gift and is perfect for the sports fan who loves Jesus. 
You can subscribe today at sportspectrum.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time on Get in the Game.